CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it is, what is it? Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Uh, and here's a story. It's breaking news. So it's not even my beloved bright one home delivered. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Sometimes they support you with my subscription. Uh, it's uh, on the phone. Yeah, I'm doing a little millennial thing. I'm getting news before. <laughs> I'm a millennial, okay? So I want to give a shout-out to two Sun-Times reporters. Uh, and um, Nader Issa uh, wrote this story along with um, Lauren Fitzpatrick. It's take a deep dive into the Chicago uh, Teachers Union. And uh, so Brandon Johnson, of course, emerged in the, in the runoff uh, to face Paul Vallis. It's very interesting. Just follow me in this, folks, for a little bit. Uh, essentially, it's the employee against the employer. In the 90s, uh, Paul Vallis was uh, Mayor Daly's handpicked man to run the Chicago Public Schools, the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools. I have a lot of opinions, which I'll hold back for the moment, on what he did and how he did it. Uh, it's going to be really hard for me to hold back, but I will. Uh, Brandon Johnson began his career as a public school teacher, uh, and then he became an activist organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, and then he got elected committee, uh, Cook County Board of Commissioner. But he's very much running with the support and the endorsement of the Chicago Teachers Union. So effectively, the teachers have a candidate in the race, and the bosses have a candidate in the race. And which way will Chicago go? Knowing Chicagoans. I'm just going to say this, knowing Chicagoans, you're going to be on the side of the bosses. I don't know, Ben. I don't know what life would be like if the bosses didn't run the show. They've always run the show. I'm going to go with the boss. That's you. Come on, Chicago. You know you're like that. Uh, anyway, great job. I got a um, Nader uh, and, well, Lauren used to do the uh, pl uh, education beat for the Sun-Times. Now she does investigations. Uh, but to me, Nader represents a new generation of reporters in, in, in the city of Chicago. And as an old boomer, an old reptile, <laughs> an old dinosaur, you know, I just like that. I like the millennials when it comes to reporting. They're not like 
boomer reporters. You know what I'm saying? Boomer reporters. I'm not hating on all you boomer reporters, but I had a tendency just to go along with the flow. You know what I mean? Whatever the boss man said. But I just got this feeling of millennial reporters. Maybe my distinguished guests will disagree with me. I just think the new generation is a little fresher. They don't just believe everything that is told to them. They don't stick to the script. Uh, I, it's just, I, I don't know. I like the new generation of reporters in the city of Chicago. So, uh, anyway, shout out Nader and, uh, uh, Lauren, uh, for the story. And there's a great quote from my old friend, Delmarie Cobb in this uh, story and Delmarie, man, Delmarie is just parading from one article to another. Everybody is turning to Delmarie Cobb for quotes and she delivers, uh, whether you agree with her or not, but she's always on point. Uh, and I just love it. I started quoting the New York Times. The Tribunal got into the act. I started quoting her. The Sun-Times uh, been quoting her. So uh, good for you, Delmarie Cobb. Uh, yours, yours is a voice that I really think should be heard in the city of Chicago. Delmarie's been on the front lines of lefty politics for a long, long time. Uh, and um, she is uh, just like anchored in the black community. And so it's just like black leftist politics. That blows people's minds. Uh, here in the city of Chicago. Here's a quote from Delmarie Cobb from the Nader Issa story. Quote, there's a straight line that you can draw from Paul Vallis's time as CEO, which was the beginning of non-educators and the beginning of the mayor taking control of CPS, straight through ROM closing 50 schools, Cobb said, and straight through kids committing crime and the violence that we have out here because there are people who never went back to school after the closings. Delmarie Cobb telling it like it is, in my humble opinion. And thank you, Nader and Lauren, for quoting her. Uh, I One of my complaints, as my distinguished guest knows, I'm always lamenting that I just never hear the left uh, in mainstream uh, publications quoted, given a voice. So I got to give a shout out uh, to the Sun-Times, Nader and Lauren for quoting Delmarie Cobb and telling that story. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself. She's been holding back listening to me rant and rave, and she wants to talk. Take it away, distinguished guest. Hi, I'm Ramana Hussein. I'm an editorial board member and columnist at the Chicago Sun-Times. Yes. And and, and, I'm, and and I'm a colleague of both Lauren and Nader, and I respect both of them. Lauren is a Gen Xer like me, and Nader is a millennial. But I have to tell you, Ben, I know you're talking a lot about millennials. These days, millennials are considered old. I was watching a show the other day, <laughs> and there was a Gen Z character telling the millennial, oh, you're actually kind of different than the rest of the millennials. So I'm just saying that now it's all about the Zers. But millennials, yes. I definitely have... Um, you know, I make comments about millennials all the time about certain things about them. But um, I do I, we do have a lot of good reporters who tend who happen to be millennials at the Sun-Times. Nader is one of them. I think he's doing an excellent job covering um, CPS and just education in general. He's, he's just been excellent. All right. So before we uh, go into the other topics that I have to discuss with you. I, I, I want to get your thoughts on the position I stated in the opening. Millennials and Gen Z, I'll throw Gen Zs in there, okay? In my humble opinion, are not as jaded uh, as boomers when it comes to reporting. And they're open to new ideas in a way that baby boomer journalists were not. And they give, uh, I'm not saying that millennials are any more to the left because I'm sure they come in. Uh, I don't know what Nader is politics are at all. So I'm not even going to pretend that I do, uh, but they don't, I've had a lot of millennial journalists on uh, 
uh, Maya Duke Masif. I could just go on and on with the list. Kelly Garcia, actually, she's a Gen Z. Rachel Hinton uh, was just on the show today, uh, millennial. And they just don't fall in line like baby boomers. That's my belief. Uh, Gen X, you guys are a little better than baby boomers, not much. Uh, but uh, <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, uh, we were we were just like the boomers no. because, to be fair, I mean, boomer culture was stuffed down our throats when we came of age. That's all, you know. I mean, I didn't even get that some of our pop culture was about Vietnam. Like, I didn't know Rambo was about Vietnam until I got older. I just thought it was some guy just fighting, and then I realized how much of boomer influence, you know, is on us. So we, we kind of just took, took notes from the boomers, but I have to tell you, um, I think, I think it has to do with the way newsrooms were looked, you know, for the boomers. I mean, the boomers, most newsrooms, I mean, to this day are mostly white or have a lot of white, you know, people and personnel. So a lot of people had similar backgrounds, I think, when boomers did start off in journalism. I could be wrong. There were a few people of color. And all the people that you mentioned were people of color. So um, I I think that kind of plays into it, too. And I think a lot of the younger millennials who are white are exposed to different people and different ideas. And I don't think they take the status quo as easily as the older generation. I also have to tell you that... um, when I started off in journalism, I um, I remember covering, I'm not going to mention the name of this reporter, but I remember going to um, the police headquarters and seeing the Sun-Times police reporter at the time. This is when I started at City News Bureau. And I really couldn't tell the difference between this reporter and the cops he was covering. He pretty much was very similar to a cop. And and I'm not saying that he wasn't a good reporter, but they're definitely, like, I definitely didn't have the same camaraderie with the CPD that this person did. And I, I just think, I think it's an interesting dynamic. And I think these conversations are really good that we're having in journalism. Um, you know, for the longest time, we talk about objectivity. And now I think the conversation has shifted about how we do bring our experiences and how it does color the way we write about things. And um, I've always felt that the way we cover the way we cover news isn't hasn't always been fair in journalism. And I'm like I said, I'm a Gen Xer, so I, I do come from a position that, or at least I was exposed to a journalism that was more traditional. But I try to be more open-minded about um, looking at things. And because of my experience in who I am, um, I do think that it's good to look at different ways of covering things and questioning, you know, people in positions of power. And that's actually kind of been journalism from the get-go. So it's not like I think, you know, it's not like boomers have failed. I mean, there's been a lot of good, you know, journalists in the past who are boomers. It's just... It's just, I don't, (laughs) well, I mean, I agree. I mean, listen, I I tell, I tell Mick that I think that, um, white male writers or white writers in general have been exalted for us. I mean, those are who we were exposed to when we talk about, um, you know, great American writers when I was younger, it would mostly be white males. And so I try to look at, I try, I do try to look at different, um, perspectives and different, you know, people who are writing, I think that that awareness is out there for a long time. And because I'm a person of color, and I come from, you know, a marginalized group, religious group, um, I've actually always pushed for diversity in newsroom, it just only became more hip 
after George Floyd, post George Floyd, where people are paying it. I think mainstream journalism organizations are paying attention to this. So, um, yeah, mo- more power to them. And I'm not saying I, I'm always agreeing with what millennials as a group think or say. Sometimes I'm pushing back too. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I, I have talked to um, other millennial journalists and I said, well, you know, they'll bring something up and I go, well, did you ask this, this and this? And this is just me as an editor. You know, I, I try to push them to look at, um, you know, and I'm not saying both sides of isms. I'm just saying that, you know, they need to reach out and talk to everyone when they're covering certain stories and stuff like that. And that's not, I'm not pointing to Nader at all because I have not edited him, but I know he's a great reporter. And I'm just saying that um, I think it's good to have young voices in the newsroom. I think that's one of the things that we haven't had in a long time. And, um, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's hard for me to come to terms, but I do realize that I'm of the older set now. So, you know, I still think of myself as like the among the younger people in the newsroom and I'm not, you know, and that's one of the things that um, I think it's hard for boomers to let go of, um, you know, the glory. And I think that's what's been hard for Gen Zers is, I mean, Gen Xers is that we never really got a chance to lead (laughs) because the boomers really, really, I mean, they kind of they kind of never let go, and so it, it's it's like people. Uh, that's why people forget that there's Gen Xers. People go from boomers to millennials. I'm like, hey, what about us? So it's it's funny. It's 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 interesting. I just think it's good to have different perspectives from different people, and it's good to have the voices out there. And both Nader and um, Lauren, hats off to both of them. Yeah, I um, wow, you gave a lot. I mean, this wasn't even on my list of topics, but you've. You, you left, there's so much to respond to. Uh, and, oh God, just the notion of objectivity. Uh, you, you mentioned objectivity at one point, the elusive uh, objectivity. And I, I have, I mean, the notion of objectivity is such an illusion. It's, it's fantastical. It, it, it's just so unrealistic. And so, what do I mean? We bring our somebody. I'm quoting somebody right now. I can't remember who I'm quoting, but we bring our lived experiences to everything. And in my particular case, my mother, may she rest in peace, was a public school teacher for many, many, many years, probably over 40, if I have to think about it, a long, long time, and many years in the city of Chicago. And she was a union activist. Uh, and she walked out on strike at least 10 times, at least, Romana, uh, in the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s. Uh, and so I grew up hearing at the dinner table stories of incompetent CPS bureaucrats, an out-of-touch central office, uh, stupid curriculum dictates passed on, the politicization of our Chicago public schools, the wimpiness of the union and its uh, f- uh, how they only addressed issues of, like, at best, uh, salaries and never talked about curriculum. And to that list, the worthlessness of the mainstream media in covering this, because all they did was repeat the press releases that the central office set out. That's what I grew up with. So I spent, like, all my years trying to counter that. 
You get what I'm saying? It always felt like I was swimming against the tide. And that's why, like, when, like, the Sarah Carps of the world came around and the Linda Luttons of the world came around, and that's your generation. They're all Xers. They were, like, different. I'm like, God bless them. Finally, someone who does more than just repeat these stupid press releases, you know, where they just the P- PR, literal PR stuff, and then, like, dismiss the union. Like, God, the Tribune and its coverage of the unions disgraceful down through the years. It's changed uh, th- thanks to millennial reporters, you know, thanks to millennials that are running the show now at the Tribune. But I, that so, you know, so am I biased? I guess I am. You know, Ramana, you would say, I mean, yeah, I'm in favor. I'm in bias in favor of teachers. So I. That's the bias I bring to it. I what can I tell you, Ramona? That's no, just- and, and and you bring that you bring that sensibility or that opinion to your opinion pieces, right? And you know, even in the stories that you do, the longer pieces you do, you do bring your personality, right? When I do my columns, I mean, I definitely have a viewpoint. I mean, I also I, I'm a Muslim, so you know, I grew up with my dad reading the paper and like yelling at it um, because he'd be like, "Oh, that's totally wrong," and then you know. I joined journalism and I just saw how so many reporters didn't understand my community and would make comments about my community, you know, without second thought and just kind of generalizing, you know, certain people. And then, you know, I was always sensitive to, I don't want to do that to other people. I wanted to understand. And I, I wanted to, I, I realized that, um, you know, a, a white, um, a white, viewpoint and the white gaze was not important to me. It is important to me to get like, you know, the full story. And, you know, I'm not perfect either. I don't think I'm like the best journalist in the world. I've made mistakes. You know, I try to cover things fairly when I'm covering a news story. But when I do my opinion pieces, I definitely bring myself to it. And yeah, and when I cover other things, I bring myself to it. I might see things that other people may not. Other people with different lived experiences might see something um, differently. And, and, and I come from, um, an immigrant family. Um, and my experiences are completely different than most people in the newsroom. I think, um, that's changed. There's definitely a lot more people who are children of immigrants that are working in the newsroom. So, um, you know, we kind of discussed that, but I, I remember starting off in journalism. Um, there were very few people that look like me in journalism or other journalists of color. So, um, no, I, 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 I totally see where you're coming from and, and I can't see how your experience can't, doesn't affect how you cover a certain issue or a topic. So I agree with you for the most part. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it's, uh, uh, anyway, I, I, that was a tangent. I didn't think we Sorry. would go on, but I want <laughs> no, but it's not your fault. I right before we came on the air, I was reading that Nader is a story. I'm like, this, this is, you know, it, I mean, the Chicago Teachers Union is a powerful force in the city of Chicago, politically speaking. You have to address it. Uh, and uh, in the past, I believe it would have been a knee jerk uh, coverage of their danger. You'll still get that somewhere. I mean, uh, well, he doesn't write for the Tribune anymore, but John Cass, that was his thing. Look out, they're dangerous, the radicals. You know, they're George Soros. <laughs> hint, hint, Jewish people, Jewish people. Uh, and uh, so, <laughs> uh, so I just, I don't know. I, shout out to the bright one for that story. All right. Um, you just returned from a two-week trip to India. 
Uh, and there was you were uh, sending, putting your pictures out on uh, social media, and I really enjoyed it. Part of it I enjoyed, I must confess, is... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mick. My dear friend, Mick Dumke, about to get thrown under a bus again. We always joke about this. Uh, but you uh, brought Mick uh, along with you to India. And <laughs> Mick looked like me, like a younger, skinnier version of me out there with a Bulls t-shirt on. Uh, he wa- Okay, he wasn't wearing a Bulls hat. Mick, you should get a Bulls hat, all right? Uh, but uh, I think it's your forget the Cubs hat, Mick. Mm-mm. Get a Bulls hat. Uh, but other than that, it could have been me. Uh, and so those pictures alone were so priceless. Uh, <laughs> Mick kind of looked a little out of place at the same time. I'm sure everybody treated him really well. Correct. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. That- um, I have to tell you my relative, I mean, I have some crazy relatives and they always haven't been on the best behavior when we've been in India. Um, and they, even the crazy ones were like really nice and, you know, my mom was just like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> when, when some of the really like, you know, kind of like, you know, problematic relatives were just like all so nice. And my mom's like, I've never seen this happen. And I told my mom, I'm like, take advantage of the white privilege. I just go, just, just go <laughs> with it. Just go with it. Um, no, the, everybody really liked Mick. You know, it's really funny because, you know, social media has really made the world a lot smaller. Like my cousin's um, children all Googled Mick before. So I, I, I bet they, I bet they uh, uh, had video and watch video of you and Mick um, when you guys were at the hideout at your show. I'm sure they watched. So anyway, they knew all about Mick and they're like, oh, you know, they're telling him they knew all about him and read all about him. And yeah, everybody was really nice. You know, um, I mentioned to them that he was a vegetarian. And so even before we came, like our cousins, some of our cousins knew that. And I kind of, you know, told some other relatives that were cooking for us. And, you know, everybody made sure he was as comfortable as possible. I was just very grateful that he didn't get sick. That was the one thing I was worried about. And, uh, you know, the one thing that I didn't even think about, I mean, I, I, I gave him like kind of a tutorial beforehand about what to expect. And I haven't been to India in over 10 years myself. So, you know, even within 10 years, I mean, there's parts of India that have kind of stood still in time, but other parts of India have really changed. Um, we had internet access the whole time we were there pretty much, um, you know, and, you know, before in the state where my parents are from, Bihar, they're like, you know, when the, the electricity would go off and it'd be off for a couple of days, um, the electricity was on the whole time we were there. And the, you know, the few times it turned off, it like went on like a couple of seconds later. So I told Mick, I'm like, you're lucky you're having that. So I told him like, listen, there's some things that your experience are completely different than when I did. And I've been going to India since the seventies. And I only have one aunt left on my dad's side. My dad was one of seven and he only has one sister left. Um, she's uh, pretty old. Um, I had one aunt die during the pandemic. One of my dad's sisters, she died at 104 years old during the height of the pandemic. So he missed her, but he got to see one of my aunts, my dad's sisters, and my mom has two brothers. And so Mick got to, um, Mick got to see them. He was really excited because (laughs) one of my uncles is uh, a member of the communist party in my mom's town. And, you know, he saw the communist office and took pictures outside the office. And, you know, my, my relatives are into politics and and things like that. So it was interesting. I had to translate to him 
with some of our relatives because uh, some don't know English that well. And those who do, you know, even they're, they're not used to talking with other Americans. I talk to my cousins um, strictly in Urdu usually. Um, I, I rarely talk to them in English. So it was it was good. So my younger sister went with us and my mom went with and my mom is still there right now. But overall, it was a good experience. I planned it out so um, Mick would have a rest day and then we would go see sightsee. And uh, I knew the kind of things that was he was into and what he would like. He told me he wanted to go to India since he was 18 years old. And I was like, uh, so what took you so long? It took me to get him to go get his butt up and go. But he really liked it. Um, so I'm glad. I'm glad. I think he'd go again. So mission accomplished. Now, as long as my mom comes back safe and healthy, I think the trip went pretty well. And everybody was saying that they really liked our picture. And I don't know if you know Tom Needham. He's an attorney. Um, he, he, he told, he also mentioned that he likes, um, like mix, you know, cubs and bulls hats and Mick's sister, Mick's sister mentioned like in the, with the really beginning of the trip, she's like, Oh, I'm glad he's representing Chicago and where he's from. And then I have to make a comment. They go, he's not from Chicago. No offense. <laughs> I go, I go, he's from Michigan, but <laughs> I go nice try, but you know, but he is, I mean, I, I say that he's from Chicago, he, like just like Barack Obama. He like, you know, his formative, like his career flourished in Chicago. He got famous in Chicago, but he's not from Chicago. It's like Kanye, too. I, I would say uh, push back with you on Barack Obama. His uh, career flourished when he got out of Chicago. Uh, Barack Obama was very much stuck in the mud of Chicago politics until he ran for U.S. Senate, uh, got a, like, won that nomination and said, see ya, yeah. wouldn't want to be ya. <laughs> Maybe, but now we're making a library for him. No, but I, I always joke with Mick about him not being from Chicago because unlike, well, people look at me and they assume I'm not from Chicago. So it just gets me annoyed because people think he's Mr. Chicago. And I'm like, I'm the one that was born here, but because yeah, I'm brown, nobody, is, yeah, nobody thinks I'm from here. So Mick Dunkey is very much from Michigan. Yes. Let's get that. Let's, let's get, not get that twisted. He is Michigan all the way. Yeah. He talks about, uh, he talks about Michigan all the time. That's, that's, that, that's the other no, thing. So I'm just like, all these people who think he's like hardcore Chicagoan, I'm like, I'm sorry. He always tries to tell me how great Michigan is. And I'm like, no, it isn't. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so you went to India. So uh, many of your columns uh, I could think of offhand are about the dynamic of how Chicago interprets uh, India. How Chicago interprets not just Chicago, but the state of Illinois was your last column uh, was actually broader than the city of Chicago and how the politics of India with the Modi regime, a uh, very a Hindu nationalist regime running the country uh, and all the tensions between Muslims and Hindus uh, in India, how that plays out politically in uh, Chicago and Illinois, written some great columns. We've had many discussions on this. I urge everybody to check out past conversations with Ramana on this. She's really the one, uh, she's the pathblazer on this issue, in my humble opinion, uh, in, uh, in the Chicago area. So going back to India, what was your sense of the dynamic, the political dynamic, uh, the cultural dynamic, uh, between Muslims and Hindus in India when you went back, having seen it from the perspective of a journalist in Chicago and watching how it plays out in the Chicago City Council and the Illinois legislature, then what was it like when you went back to India? 
Well, I mean, I wasn't like hanging out with like, you know, bigger, broader groups. I was mostly hanging out with my relatives. So I kind of, we kind of, I kind of asked them questions and I I have to tell you. So when I did the story about the Illinois, um, the Indian council um, that was um, represented in the state of Illinois, there was a progressive uh, news, news online news source called the Quint where a reporter reached out to me about that story. And he did kind of like a little piece, a little explainer on it for the Quint in India. And that reporter actually came out and spoke with us. Um, he came, he met us, met up with us one day um, after dinner and he kind of hung out with us. Cause like, oh, I would really like to see you guys. This is when we were in new Delhi. And so, um, you know, he, so I had a lot of anecdotes. I mean, a lot of people, um, you know, Muslim and Hindus are friends, you know, it's not like my, my, my uncle, who I just mentioned, who's a communist, his best friends are Hindu. My mom grew up, most of her best friends are Hindu. So people get along. It's, I mean, it's just like anywhere in the United States too, right? There are Trump supporters and they're out there and you can't help but not notice. Um, when I was talking to the reporter from the Quint, he was telling me that all his friends from um, college any of his friends from college, um, he's no longer friends with a lot of them who don't share the same religion because he said that, you know, I'd look at the stuff that they post on Facebook and when you don't, and he was just basically saying when you don't want the existence of people like me in our country, I mean, how can I be friends with you? And he's like, you know, I was like brothers with some people and, you know, I don't live there um, long term, so I don't know the the um, lingering effects of how that is. But we got a lot of anecdotal, um, you know, insight from my relatives. Um, my relatives, you know, I have some cousins who are professionals, and one of the when we were talking about my cousins all being nice, and my mom was just kind of joking, um, and they've even told us a lot of them express that they don't want their kids living there. Um, they said that if they could leave India, they would want their kids to be, you know, to have a different experience. And I was thinking to myself, it's not like the United States is all cuddly and cuddly with immigrants or um, Muslims for that matter. But they just said that, um, you know, they're like one of some of my cousins um, who are doctors, they opened clinics in the town where my mom is from, even though they had places in the big city or worked in the big city. And they're like, well, if they were telling one of them was saying that, you know, if anything erupts, like, you know, or there's, you know, violence, they're like, I, I feel like I'll be safer in the town that I grew up. And so, you know, a lot, there's a lot of anecdotes that you're hearing from people, you know, some people, you know, it's their country. It's like, that's one of the things I think a lot of people don't realize is, is that India is a very diverse country. And, um, you know, even though Hindus are a majority, uh, Muslims are the largest minority, but there's also different different religious groups. We all speak different languages. And so um, I, I felt like, you know, and then when we took a tour um, to see the Taj Mahal, the guide was Muslim. And uh, I kind of asked him about Modi <laughs> and he he was kind of quiet. Like I felt like he was kind of wary about saying anything. And then he, he, I mean, he knew we were Muslim because of our names, but then he, but then he, you know, then he just kind of looks at me and my younger sister and goes, do you guys like Modi? And we're like, no. And then he's like, oh, I don't either. So, you know, um, it's, it, and it's interesting. And then we had uh, a guide the next day um, who took us around the whole city and he was Hindu. And at one point he goes, oh, you know, 
because all these religious groups in India, they all get along. Nobody fights here. And I was just kind of like thinking, like, are you told to say that? And he, he was very nice and he was very kind. But I told Mick, I was like, I was tempted to say something, but I'll stay quiet and bite my tongue. And that was the one thing he said. And I was just like, well, just a couple of days ago, there were two um, there were two men who were kidnapped and burned to death because they're suspected of eating beef. But, you know, I I didn't say anything. And I was actually kind of worried that I wouldn't even get a visa because I've written about um, India and I've been critical of things that um, are happening in India because I know of American journalists of Indian descent who have been denied visas. Um, And so I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, good. I'm able to get through and was able to go. And, And, you know, India is my parents' country. And it's like outside of the United, after the United States, it's the country I feel closest to, or I care about the most. So it's, it's a topic I'm in a kind of frequently, you know, visit, but yeah, we definitely did have conversations about it. And I, I think I told you, Ben, I think when we were leaving my mom's hometown, we were driving by and we saw a bunch of people with waving Indian flags. And I was asking my cousin what that was and what, or what they were protesting. It looked like some sort of rally. And he told me it was an anti-Modi um, rally, an anti-Modi demonstration. So there are people speaking out. This The state where my parents from is actually not led by the BJP right now. So everybody makes fun of the state where my parents from, but they're, they're, they're actually moving away from that, or at least they have um, people from a different party. So I didn't really get into, um, you know, the deepest aspect of it, but it's just anecdotally. And I was kind of scared. Um, I have to tell you, this is the first time because I, I can speak Hindi and I, I, what I, the language I speak is Urdu, but I can understand Hindi and there's different words that give it away that Urdu is a Muslim language and Hindi is obviously a Hindu language. And there's words like, thank you. Um, and then when you say them, <laughs> you know, like it's like a, it's a Muslim way of saying it and a Hindu way of saying it. And I was just worried that I would offend people. And I, I tried to make sure I used the right um, language and not get anybody pissed off. But I didn't have any like negative experiences. But, um, you know, I, I, I did kind of like keep an eye on things and, uh, you know, picked up newspapers. And, you know, Mick actually picked up, probably read the newspaper more than I did when I was there. And, um I think it did. I think he, you know, being in India and reading about it is completely different. And Mick has always been interested in South Asia. Like, I don't know if you know, but he started a PhD um, program on South Asia and at the UFC, but he dropped, he ended up dropping out. So he's been into South Asia a long time, uh, for a long time. And I've always told him, I'm like, you don't know anything about India. You have to go there to understand it, you know? <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> no, and, and, and the thing is a lot of people, a lot of people, um, think all Indians are alike, you know, while we were in India, Nikki Haley announced that she would be running for president. And, um, you know, I sent you that article about Indian Americans and politics. Um, and, uh, there's, you know, there's a diversity in, uh, political viewpoints. A lot of Indians don't really uh, adhere to what Nikki Haley says. And I thought the article was interesting because it said that Nikki Haley, you know, in the past, um, Indian Americans who run as Republicans, they kind of downplay their Indianness. Um, you know, Bobby Jindal, tried to act like all he did was wear cowboy boots and go hunting and never ate Indian food in his life. The guy's my age. I'm like, give me a break. Your parents came here in the seventies. There's no way they didn't make Indian food. Okay. They're, they, I just, it's just like, you know, he tried to go out of his way to like distance himself from being Indian, you know, and which is really bizarre, but Nikki Haley, um, I kind of read a little bit about her when, uh, about like her, you know, 
announcing her candidacy. And, you know, she talks about being like an Indian, you know, a child of Indian immigrants. And so the New York Times article kind of pointed out that how she's a little different, like she's using her immigrant experience as a Republican. But it'll be interesting to see, um, you know. Let's get into that a little bit. Um, I thought of you uh, when Nikki Haley, and now we've talked about Nikki Haley in the past on this show, uh, and Bobby Jindal for that matter. Uh, And uh, you weren't weren't around. I certainly wasn't going to call you in India to talk about Nikki Haley, uh, although I was tempted. Um, Yes, she announced uh, about a week or so ago, we talked about it on the show briefly, uh, and it is, to your point, uh, revealing the way she is using her immigrant experience. And I am going to give you my interpretation of how she is using it, and then I'd love to get your thoughts. Um, Nikki Haley is using her immigrant experience uh, in a way to uh, refute the notion that's put forth by so many other people that there is prejudice in this country, uh, that there are obstructions to people who, uh, as you call them, people of color, uh, to people with funny names, to Americans, to the names that are hard to pronounce. I'm just thinking of dealing with uh, Indian Americans uh, as opposed just to African Americans. Okay. So I'm just going to deal with the immigrant experience. Uh, and, and so, it kind of reminded me in many ways of what Herschel Walker did in Georgia when he was running as a Trumper uh, and he was using his candidacy to say racism, racism is a thing of the past uh, to dwell on it is to uh, tie yourself back. Uh, and uh, we should think of America as a land of opportunity uh, for black people and stop uh, harping on the negatives uh, which embraces Ron DeSantis's efforts to totally rewrite the curriculum. Paul Vallis, right here in the city of Chicago, people, the guy you're getting ready to vote for, go listen to, read his comments on what critical race theory, if you want to, don't, don't act like it's just down in Florida. You're all set, ready to vote for him, Gold Coast. I'm just saying. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on that tangent. Um, guess I did mean to go on that tangent. So I felt that Nikki Haley was part of that general uh efforts like the Herschel Walker's efforts, the Ron DeSantis efforts and the Paul Vallis efforts. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, as a daughter of immigrants, I mean, she's just like me. She has a right to talk about her background, but I know a lot of other Indians feel a certain way about her presentation. Um, you know, a lot of Indians and Indian Americans do feel like, she's kind of in the past, she's kind of whitewashed her image. I know for a lot of people, um, her name doesn't matter, but her real name isn't Nikki. It's Nimrata and she goes by Nikki. So a lot of people feel like why even go by that name, use your own name. I know for, for a lot of South Asians and for a lot of people who have names that aren't, you know, the conventional American names, I think in 2023, it kind of irks a lot of people like why change your name? And so, I don't know. I, I, I mean, Nikki Haley. I mean, I think it, I think it's, I think it's clear that I'm not necessarily a fan. And I, I do feel like you know, Asian Americans in general have been used as, um, as this model minority, right? 
we've been propped up as this model minority group that look, Asians have made it. So, so could all people of color and everybody's experiences are different, even amongst Asian Americans. And it's, it's a very damaging myth, um, not only to um, other people of color, but also to Asian Americans, because people paint us with a broad brush. And this is the, this is people on the left too. Um, and people on the right. Um, the people on the right use that, use Asian Americans, Indian Americans as like, oh, look, look at this Indian American. They beat the odds and look where they are. And, you know, and so we'll get some Indian American. I mean, you look at someone like, look at the, look at the Indian Americans that were propped up for the longest time. Dinesh D'Souza was like the only Indian that I would see on TV in 2000, 2001. Um, and then there's others that I know um, that were propped up after 9-11. And they were the South Asians that the other South Asians didn't like. And they were propped up by the left, too. So it's like, you know, a certain mindset that gets, you know, put in, you know, I don't know if you knew, but in Donald Trump's cabinet, I think Indian Americans were the largest um, group or largest group of people of color represented in his cabinet or in his like administration, which a lot of Indians kind of wrote about and um, uh, kind of talked about. And so there's a lot of debate and discussion. If you go, if you follow like a lot of Indian American uh people on social media, there's all these discussions about it. And just, um, they feel like a lot of the Republican Indian American politicians are they basically call them sellouts. And I know a lot of people who are white, they're like, oh, you can't say that. But I'm like, oh, yeah, I can. I'm Indian. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, people, people feel very strongly about it. And people are a lot, I mean, Nick, Nikki Haley's allowed to have her opinion, but a lot of people feel like, um, She's not the Indian American they want representing. And a lot of times people think that just because someone's Indian, that I'm going to like them. You know, oh, look, that person's Indian. I remember a long time ago when Bobby Jindal was the governor of Louisiana. Somebody in the newsroom goes, oh, you must like Bobby Jindal. And I'm like, not really. And this is before he became a name that people recognized. I'm like, no, I don't like him at all. Um, I, I don't agree with his politics. So it, it it's, it's, it's interesting. And yeah, it, politics is is very much an animal in India as it is in the United States and Chicago for that matter. So. All right. I just have to push back on one thing you said. I, maybe I didn't hear it clearly. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza, it was, has definitely not been propped up by anybody on the left. No, not him, not him, but there were, there's other, okay. there's other Indians that I will tell, I can tell you about offline. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to give them okay. more, right. but I, I, Oh, there's definitely people that have turned out to be um, very right wing. But it, it, right after 9-11, there are certain people, at least from the Muslim community, Dinesh D'Souza is not Muslim, but there are a lot of South Asians um, from the Muslim community were propped up by the left. And then they all turned out to be Trump supporters like 15, 20 years later. And all the, all the Indian Muslims are like, yeah, like shocker there because they were telling, they, I'm just saying, I maybe not, definitely, maybe not super and left, we're gonna but lefty. Left side. Okay, now we're getting into our old. This is an old debate uh, between Monami. She puts everybody in the left. Like she puts liberals, lefties, Bernie Sanders supporters, okay, Hillary not, Clinton. Not, not the lefties, the liberals, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, li and, and yeah, liberals. Thank you. That's a whole other. Now there's like five categories. You can, progressives, liberals, lakefront liberals. I mean, I could go on and on. Well, I was told. Um, I was told there's no such thing as lakefront liberal after Tuesday's election. Uh, no, the the lakefront liberal. Well, yeah, this that phenomenon. 
Uh, well, okay, that's a whole other yeah, conversation. Yeah, we will have to talk about that. It, yeah. It, it, yeah, that's a whole other conversation <laughs> because there really has never been that many like front liberals. Uh, they barely were enough to enable Harold Washington to squeak by in 1983. Squeak by. So they weren't that prevalent back in 1983, which was a long time ago. Um, all right. Uh, let's close down by uh, a little shout out to a movie that I never thought the two of us were giving a shout out to. And that is Elvis. Uh, you, you finally saw it. I don't know where I can't remember where you were when you saw it. Uh, but, it, you know, Romana's recommendation is always a feature of this. And I got to tell you, I never expected to like it. I didn't like it at the outset for all the wrong reasons. And I still think the narrative structure of Tom Hanks didn't work. And I feel bad for Tom Hanks. He was stuck in a horrible role, poorly written role, looked like a buffoon. Uh, <laughs> but wow, what a, I love the, the, perform i like the guy who played elvis better than i loved elvis uh and uh <laughs> i just I, I really enjoyed the musical segment of it and uh your thoughts yeah i actually saw it on the plane going to india and um me and my younger sister Elmas, we both watched it um on our first leg of our trip um before we landed in turkey and uh i was just amazed at this austin butler i believe is his name because it's like you didn't forget who he is because he does such a good job playing elvis like he sang the songs himself which i thought was insane and i just thought he did a really really good job um i i remember just hearing critiques of the movie and like how that it wasn't that great and then i you know the golden globes came and then he got i think he got the golden globe correct for best actor if i'm not mistaken and and i I was just like, I, I wonder if it, it's any good. And I was like, well, kill three hours on the plane. I just thought, I just thought he did an outstanding job. Um, I was blown away. I mean, I, I, I do think he deserves an Oscar and just the singing um, and just, you know, I'm not saying that I'm like an Elvis expert. I do like some Elvis songs a lot, um, but I can't say that I'm like this huge, huge fan, but I think he did a great job, like just capturing him. And I just don't really, you know, you realize like, Elvis, I was a, barely like born when he was when he died. So I don't remember like him dying, but it was just kind of sad just watching um, this character go from this like big shot, um, you know, big shot rock and roll um, personality who who did take black music and popularize it for the white audiences. And he was just so big. And then, you know, I thought it was interesting. I, I have to look up research, um, you know, this Tom Hanks character who was his manager who kind of controlled him. And, um, you know, Elvis indicated that he kind of wanted to go um, overseas. He's, you know, he, even though he was Elvis Presley, he never been outside of the country except when he served in the military. And it's like, it was just so interesting that someone so big really didn't have that much control of his life. And he ended, um, you know, his life like playing in Las Vegas. And I'm not putting down anybody who plays shows in Las Vegas, but he kind of became this shell of who he was. And um, it's just an interesting story. So I, I, I have to tell you, the movie and the acting of Austin Butler got me interested in learning a little more, more about Elvis and his manager. I know Tom, Tom, it was the first time Tom Hanks, we have in a long time that Tom Hanks played a character that, was despicable <laughs> so so um yeah it was interesting for sure i uh i like uh, i like the Tom performance the 
Yeah, the, a, a Colonel Tom Parker's the the character that uh, uh, Tom Hanks plays, a real person. Uh, and yes, there's a lot of accuracy. I've like had many obsessions about the Elvis's career down through the years, and uh, there's a lot of accuracy uh, in the dynamics of the relationship. It's just the characterization of him by Tom Hughes and the choice of using him to be the narrative voice for this movie about Elvis. I thought it was an unwise one. Uh, and uh, but you know who am I? I'm just some guy in a podcast talking into a microphone overlooking an alley. Uh, I I urge everybody if you're anyway vaguely even remotely interested in rock and roll, uh, you should check it out because uh, Ramon is absolutely correct. Uh, they finally show it's a movie that shows how Elvis took the music from black performers uh, and transformed it in such a way that white people could go for it, and rock and roll took off and was never the same. Uh, and um, so. Yeah, I uh, enjoy it for that reason alone. All right, we've run out of time, so I'm going to just take one more time to urge you to watch Welcome to Chippendales. That's your homework assignment. Uh, I've been urging you to do that for a while. Now, now you you had an excuse. You're in India, all right? So you're not going to watch Welcome to Chippendales uh, well, in India. Any any uh, show you, you recommend for me to watch? Well, I'm watching you, but I don't think that's a show that you would watch. Um, it's season four. It's a little weak, but they showed – they throughout five episodes uh, before I went to India and I just binge watched them right now. I want to watch last of us on HBO, which everybody's been raving about and uh, something went down with my HBO. So I couldn't watch it. So I just got to double check to see with Mick, if he wants to watch it, if he doesn't, then I'm going to binge watch it. I'm trying to get him to watch Elvis. He refused to watch it. He's like, I don't like biopics. And he's like, and I go, but the guy does such a good job. It's just like worth watching. And he's like, well, why do I want to, why, why do I want to see a guy who sings? I'd rather see El- hear Elvis sing. And I'm like, Oh my God. I'm like, but just, I, I kind of can, I tried to tell him to watch it and he still didn't watch it on our way back. And so, I, I'm trying to tell him that it, it is worth watching because the performance is just, just really mind blowing. And I, I, I do think, I do think um, Austin Butler deserves an Oscar if anybody deserves an Oscar, but yeah, I don't know. There's a couple things I got to catch up on because I've been gone and, you know, welcome to Chip and Chippendales wasn't on my list. So. Oh, so good. So good. I, uh, I'm not going to say anything else about it until you see it and we can talk about it. Cause it, a lot of the issues you talk about are in that movie, like the immigrant experience, uh, and making it, uh, in America, an uh, Indian, uh, man comes to America. Uh, but then it just goes into other, other level. Oh God, American culture. It, I, and the acting is sensational. So anyway, enough on that. Uh, you'll, I know you'll get around to watching it. Uh, so it's, it's good to see you again, Romana. Welcome home. Thank and, you. uh, can't re- uh, wait to read your next column. All right. Thanks. All right. That's a great Romana Hussein. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.